Welcome, everyone, to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Paolo Fontes, who's the Chief Medical Officer of Ligenesis. And I have to say, when Paolo was recommended to me by my colleague, Mun Ching Lee, I was just really blown away by what they do. And we're going to be talking today about organ transplantation. And just to give you some context, and, and Paolo will definitely give you some more, at any one time, there are literally millions of people worldwide that are waiting for an organ transplant. And about 20 people die every day waiting for an organ transplant. This is really, though, just the tip of the iceberg, as, as we'll talk about today. An organ transplant is really a, a cascading event because it changes everything else. It, it's it, quite literally a new lease on life for many people. And, and what Dr. Fontes and the rest of the Ligenesis team have done is they figured out a way to actually use the body's lymph nodes to basically act like a miniature bioreactor uh, that can grow life-saving organs. And it's sci-fi and it's amazing. And I'm really excited to hear about it. I'm, I'm going to let Paula explain it in a little bit more detail, um, but great to have you. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be talking to you. Obviously, it's something that we have a big passion for, been working for more than 30 years. So we are always happy to share what are we doing with the public and trying to bring more awareness that what could be done to improve the life and the quality of life and the length of life of people with organ failure. Absolutely. And, and I'd love to maybe just jump right into the origins of this lymph node bioreactor approach that I described in the intro. This seems like the kind of thing that almost could have been discovered by accident. It's so crazy. And I know I gave a very high level overview, but I'd love to hear it from you, how the initial insight came about and where you all are at today. Yeah, this is one of the fascinating things in science that it was happening without being you know, seen. So my chief scientific officer, Eric Lagasse, PhD and PharmD, French, we met more than 10 years ago and he was working. He wrote a beautiful paper in, in Nature Biology where he showed for the first time that he was able to grow liver tissue, kidney tissue, and pancreatic islets into the lymph node. And it was such a unique thing that the very respected journal published this paper. And uh, when I first met him, I was fascinated because I've been in this business for too long. And my boss, Tom Stars, who is the father of transplantation and developed this field in the 1960s in Denver, he developed this concept of auxiliary liver. But sometimes you have an animal or a human with two segments of livers in the same body. And one self-regulates the other one. And when I saw what Eric was doing in this mice with the tyrosinemic disease, it resembled exactly the concept that Dr. Starzer had. But when I look at the histology, the tissues look to me like a real liver. So the very first question in life is, can you reproduce this in a large animal model that becomes clinically relevant? Because I'm also a scientist, I you know, publish a lot, I end up being full professor of surgery in this, but my interest in was always in translational medicine to my patients, because I live through the disasters and the fact that sometimes you don't have an option to offer to that family, to that patient, and they will die. And that for me was the worst. So I always want to create a new option for somebody who was with the disease. And when I saw Eric's work, I said, why don't we try to build a model with this in a large animal that would be more translational and more meaningful? We said, well, let's do it. And this is how we start this uh, journey. And there's a number, a number of different technology approaches to this problem over the years. And, and I think you've worked across a number of those. I wonder if you could just give a little bit of a history on, on what are the different approaches. We know there's a huge shortage of you know, kidneys, for example, livers as well. People spend you know, months to years on the waiting list. What other approaches have been tried? How do they work? And, and how is this approach that you described different? Yeah, it's a fascinating problem that we have. When Dr. Starzl initially developed organ transplantation, 
that you will uh, resolve the problem of organ failure by changing that organ. It worked with the liver, it worked with the kidney, Norman Shunway did it with the lungs, then you know, he did also with the um, heart. Somebody else got the credit for the heart in South Africa later. And the organs were coming along and you know, but it was clear that we were not doing enough. And then we could do more and we could open this field for cell-based therapy. So Camilo Ricordi, who was somebody who trained me and still very active in this field, came to Pittsburgh in the early 90s to develop a new program in islet transplantation. And Dr. Starzo allowed us to build a cell transplantation program that we will do islets, hepatocytes, muscle cells, bone marrow, and other cells to try to be more comprehensive in how we will create opportunities. And then through my life as a surgeon, I started seeing that we didn't have enough organs. Can we use animals as source of organs? We call this xenografts. So a very complex immunological issue that we went through. And I spent more than a decade of my life working full-time on xenografts. It's, it's complicated. You know, it's very challenging. There's a lot of ethical issues, which animal you use as a donor. If you use a pig, if you use a you know, primate, these issues. And then as technology continues to evolve, it came a time that we were able to learn more about the actual cellular matrix of the organs. And we thought about, can we decell organs and reseed these organs mm. with cells and create so-called artificial organs? And can we develop organoids? Can we have something that we grow outside of the body and implant this with the, like a microchip that we will grow with the function of an organ? One of the biggest problems in biology is every organ needs blood flow through it. So if you build something outside of the body that you cannot connect with the blood flow, and right. for liver, hearts, and lungs, it's a massive blood flow. Yes. So if you don't have a very safe environment, you can kill somebody doing this, and it really doesn't work well. And more than that, immunologically, the blood flow through vessels, the vasculature have endothelial cells that cover this. And these endothelial cells are very active immunologically for a reason. So we don't get antigens from outside that will invade our body. So the challenges of working with this artificial organs, with 3D printed organs, with these cell organs, I have a company on machine perfusion and all this stuff. It were amazing. And then I see this French guy say, wait a minute, stop. Why don't we use the lymph node, which is a well-known bioreactor that grows the T cells when you need it? Why don't we use the lymph node as the place in vivo where you put the right cells in and these cells will grow like a flower, like a plant that will reassemble into an organ? And they are within the, the you know, patient's body. And most interesting than anything, the lymph node vessels are from the patient. So the endothelial cells that cover the vasculature of the lymph node are not from the donor. So you are basically doing a transplant of parenchymal cells that will have a function either as a you know, liver or as a pancreatic tissue for the insulin or as a kidney or as a thymus, as Eric did, but with the flow from the patient's own endothelial cells. And that is a revolutionary concept. And then when we developed the first large animal model, and we realized that the tissue not only grows, but it assembles histologically as a normal liver. So I did this with the pathology. I did a blind uh, test with the pathology. I showed him all the biopsies of the necropsies of the animal. I said, how, how do you like these livers? He said, this is great. Why you were showing me all this normal liver? <laughs> I said, well, thanks for asking it's this not, question. It's not as normal as you think, yeah. <laughs> Some of this tissue that I'm showing you is not a liver. 
I said, what is it? And when I told him what I was doing, he was blown away because he could see hepatic lobules, central veins, the portal triads, the bile ducts, the sinusoids. So when he looked at me across the microscope and see and said, this is real. So for me, it was a third party, you know, the risky thing that we got something. And obviously to move this forward towards a real therapy, it took our CEO, Michael Hufford, with 25 years of you know, experience in drug industry to come and say, how do you build the company and translate this technology and go through the FDA and then do a clinical trial? So it's a long, it's a, it's a long way. Yeah, it's amazing. And just to recap, to make sure I get it and everybody else listening gets it. So do you take a piece of the existing liver and then seed it into the lymph node somehow? And then it basically it self-organizes and, and grows from there? Or, or have I missed something? Yeah, this is exactly what we did initially. So as a transplant immunologist, I said, let's do a first experiment, taking immunology away. So we take the animal's own liver. So I got some pigs that I took the left segment of the liver, the left lobe, I did a hepatectomy, took the left liver, isolated cells from there. That I did an operation that we developed in the 60s called the protocable shunt, that Dr. Stasel did this a lot, that you basically connect the main vein that goes into the liver, you take that away and put it into the vena cave. So three quarters of the blood flow to the liver are taken away. The liver cells said, are you crazy? We're going to die. And they go to liver failure with this. So in this animal model, we got the animal cells into the lymph nodes. And one and two months later, when we did the necropsy of these animals, and you open up, you look at the lymph nodes, that you transplant the cells. Myself, I did the transplant myself. I see these mini livers. I said, you got to wow. be kidding. I mean, this is not, this is not possible. So, so realistically, is that exactly what you said first, we did the animal's own cells. When Michael built the company and went to the regulatory and presented this to the FDA, the FDA said, this looks great. And we've seen the data from you know, rodents doing allogeneic with immunosuppression. Can you do the same in a large animal model? So we did an additional work in dogs where we did allotransplantation means di between different animals. So they're not you know, matched using immunosuppressive therapy, and the same thing happened again. Even when you do the immunosuppression, if you put liver cells that work like a stem cell base, that they mm. will grow again. Because if you and I have an accident or we, or we are organ donors, if we are life donor to one of your relatives and we take half of your liver, in six weeks, your liver grows back. Right. So how is that possible? So that same mechanism that drives hepatic regeneration is what drives the cells that we put into the lymph node. But we never thought that they will grow into a point that they, they are not only histologically normal, but Eric did this amazing work when we did the pig showing that the cells can also synthesize bile acids and produce bile. Right. So you have a functional hepatocyte into the lymph node that we call ectopic, is a Greek name for outside of the place. It's an ectopic liver that produces bile and works and produces albumin and the things that the liver should be doing. And goes back to Dr. Starr's initial idea that you know, if you have an auxiliary liver, when, when, when the liver that is diseased is shrinking because there's too much disease going on, the liver liberates these growth factors. Among them, one called hepatic growth factor, hepatocyte growth factor, HEF. This was discovered by George Michaelopoulos, who worked with us in 1989 when he was at Duke. These growth factors go back to the tissue that you transplant and help the cells to grow. 
So there is a self-regulated mechanism within any mammal that you do that if you are losing liver mass in one point mm-hmm. and you create another place where you can grow liver mass, you go. Wow. And it, and it will it will figure it out. That's amazing. Yeah, it's nature's self-regulation that we see in so many biological systems. The liver was built with this because it's the largest organ in the human body with 500 different functions and we can't live without it. So there is a mechanism built within mammals that when you have this, and even with the rodents, that when you lose a portion of your liver, the liver recovers and secrete all these growth factors that help the tissue to reestablish the total liver mass. And I mean, one of the most remarkable things about this is you all are getting ready to start a phase 2A clinical trial. So you're starting to put this into humans, you know, which is, a, as everybody in the industry knows, there's a, a lot of work that needs to be done to establish that it works. And then there's a big step um, of, of testing that it's safe and effective in humans. I, a lot of listeners will probably be generally familiar with clinical trials, but I, there's definitely some nuances around, obviously, your approach, but also organ transplantation trials compared to small molecule or, or biologic drugs. So it'd be great if you could just walk us through what are you trying to measure in the trial? How many patients? How does it work? Um, and I'd also love to hear about is our patients getting transplanted with their own tissue, so to speak, or is it more of like an off-the-shelf type approach where you've taken one or more donor tissues effectively grown them in an external lymph node and, and then are going to transplant those into patients. So I'd love if you could just talk us through what that trial looks like. Yeah, those are great questions. And obviously, uh, we're excited that we got this opportunity that the FDA has understood the message. They were very mindful of the unmet medical need. As a transplant surgeon, seeing patients with cirrhosis every day, trying to treat them, Half of the patients sent to me, they need a liver transplant, but they could not get a liver transplant because they have all the medical problems, mm. including heart to lung disease that will preclude them to have an open operation. So I have, I have to tell these patients, I have nothing to offer you. I said, are you kidding? What do we do now? I said, oh, well, you're going to go to a nursing home, to palliative care. It's embarrassing. I mean, I was, I was, I was very upset and frustrated every week when I have to talk to the families about this. So when we saw this opportunity and we present to the FDA and the credit goes to our CEO who really designed the clinical trial and came with this regulatory pathway to the FDA, you know, most of the phase one clinical trials are done in very small studies, first in humans, to do pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics, we call PKPD, and toxicity of the drugs. We are doing a biologic. It's not a drug, but it's, it's seen like a drug. Hmm. On this biologic, hepatocytes have been transplanted in humans before. So this was not the first. The change of our approach was, one, we are doing a hepatocyte transplant in a new location, meaning inside of the lymph node. So most of the hepatocyte transplants done around the world were given inside of the portal vein, the main vein that I did at Portal Cave Ocean when I took it away from the liver, that main vein feeding the liver, the cells were put inside. And realistically, it's not how they should be. It doesn't work well. The data shows that that's not the right place to put these cells. And the second issue with the FDA, and we develop and we have a patent on this, we said, we don't want to do an open operation. We want to do a procedure that for an outpatient awake, you do an endoscopy under sedation. And with these new endoscopes, with an ultrasound at the tip called endoscopic ultrasound, then you can see the lymph nodes outside wow. of the GI tract. You localize the lymph nodes and you go with the needle, achieve the middle of the lymph node, and then you inject the cells while the patient is awake. 
And when we present this to the FDA, I said, these patients with cirrhosis, they cannot have open operations if it's not the liver transplant because too much of a risk. So they said, we understand that. So the safety that was built in, it was amazing. So you know, phase 2A clinical trials, you're looking for a dose response. So we told them we're going to go to three sets of uh, three cohorts of patients to do different dose. We're not at oncology therapy, but the dose here, meaning safety, with the idea that you were putting cells like little seeds that will grow. So how much of the cells can you put that will grow faster enough to get the function that you want without creating more, more problems? So this trial was mainly designed we call this four by four open label, those escalation with the FDA, they were very meaningful that this was an important milestone for those patients. And they gave us the right to do this phase 2A. And then you do a cohort of patients, then you wait for three months, and then you have the DSMB that will look into this to see if safety is achieved and the patient is fine. Then you go to the next cohort and you do the same and you go to the next cohort but when you talk to people, I said, wait a minute, you're doing a cell transplant in an outpatient with endoscopy, and what cells are you using again? So this is one of the most important things of this trial. We are using liver cells from discarded liver. Wow. So to make the word sad enough, besides not being able to take care of all the patients with cirrhosis that come to the office, when I was flying around the country, and it still didn't happen, when we're going for organ donors and we do this work, for several hours, sometimes days to get organs, close to a third of these livers, 25, 30% of these are not used for transplantation because they have issues. Most commonly now with this opioid pandemic that we have, a lot of young people die from drug overdose and there's a lot of damage close to the time that they get. So you cannot use these organs in a safe way. So our trial is built in getting discarded livers. They're not going to be used for wow. transplantation. So we're not taking away any organ from anybody that could have this. And how many of these organs we see in our country for the last decade is almost 2,500 a year. Oh my gosh. It's, it's just insane. So, so you have a huge amount of organs. So the trial, as you asked me, is a phase 2A where the cells come from uh, allogeneic, meaning that a separate donor that we will get through the OPOs. We match the blood type we do some immune uh, matching with this organs, doing something called PRA, panoreactivity antibodies, and cross-match to avoid antibody-mediated you know, that will damage the organs early on. So you have a safer way to do that. You use less drugs, immunosuppressive therapy. But once you get the organs, you have to take the cells, this, this organ, to a GMP facility, to a lab, where you basically disassemble a live organ. So there is a method developed that you inject collagenase and you break all the you know, connective tissue that keep the cells intact and you isolate the cells separated. You, you go with a centrifuge and you filter this and you end up with a very small amount of cells, 50 million cells in one ml. And this is why you transplant. So it is crazy wow. for the liver size. I mean, I spend my life holding livers. It's, it's, you know, it's a big organ. You end up with a little bit of the cells who are the real seeds. And once you transplant to the endoscope into the lymph nodes and they engraft because you're giving immunosuppression and you're avoiding initial rejection of the cells, 
they start to develop in this cell adhesions, this tight M gap cell junctions, and start growing again. And you see the cells growing, you see the bile ducts being formed, you see bile being produced, and you see a new liver tissue being formed. Wow. And can you get multiple doses out of a single discarded liver? How many people could you treat with one of these? This is a great question. So Michael has this PowerPoint that we show that you could transplant for each liver up to 75 patients because the liver has billions of cells. So this question that you ask initially is very important. I am, I am glad that you asked this question. The whole industry will, will like to have a, a medical treatment, cell-based therapy that's off the shelf, that you get an organ, you isolate the cells, and then you find a way to preserve the cells in the best possible way to transplant when needed. So there is a way to do this with cryopreservation. Then you drop the temperatures all the way to minus 80. There's some loss of the cells, but you can keep a lot of the cells alive. And with this, you can transplant people across a huge geographic area with different medical needs if you do the right matching. So we have partners from the industry that were very keen on, in us to move this technology. So we are working now with the GMP labs and even private companies that want to move on this concept. Can the cell-based therapy business now that is done with allogeneic cells, can you make this off the shelf, as you ask so wisely, if you find a way to isolate the cells in the GMP, cryopreserve, and then provide the cells to patients in different geographic regions when needed. I think we're probably going to move into this quick. And how difficult is the matching process? Obviously, I know a little bit about the, and I think there was a Nobel Prize awarded for the kidney National Kidney Registry matching process because it is challenging if a family member, direct family member is not available to find a match. How, how challenging is that if you've, got, you know, if you've got a single discarded liver and 100 patients who need a transplant? How many of those on average could you treat with that one liver? Yeah, you know a lot of kidney transplants and you've been through this matching and you probably know a lot about HLA and, and how we tie people. For livers, you don't have to do a perfect six antigen HLA matching. What we've done historically is doing a blood type match. So you get the same blood type, so you avoid some preformed antibodies. And then you do this test that I told you about, this PRA and the cross match to make sure that you don't have preformed antibodies. And if this is okay, that cell uh, graft will be safe to be transplanted to a person. You don't have to have a perfect match as you have in bone marrow, because for the bone marrow, mm. you were trying to replace the entire immune system. You were trying to put cells in that the patient will not reject the cells and more complicated when you have GVHD. If the cells grow and think that the, the patient is different, the cells can attack the patient, you know, and create another problem. So we've seen this in organs out. So the matching is not as crucial as with the bone marrow and the kidneys. And, you know, it will probably help this therapy. What other disease areas or organs have you all looked at? It, it, clearly, you started with liver and there's a huge opportunity there to help people. But there's also opportunities in, in I think, a pretty limitless number of areas. It'd be great to hear about where you've tried in animal models, where you're thinking of trying in humans, and also just the scope of what's, what's possible. Yeah, when Eric first developed this idea with hepatocytes, He's been trained by Irv Weissman, probably the most recognized stem cell biologist in the world from San Francisco. And so Eric was very deep into this business. So when Eric saw this phenomenon happening with hepatocytes, he moved right into pancreatic islets. 
which I worked several years of my life, and I was part of Camilo's first clinical trial in humans when we transplanted 26 patients in Pittsburgh in 1991, 1992, you know, putting the islets into the liver. It looked okay, but again, it was not the right place. So Eric showed that if you put hepatocytes on the lymph node, they grow and do well. If you put islets into the lymph node, they grow and do well. Then Eric said, if you put cells from the thymus, which is an organ that we have early in life, and it will get atrophic and involute through our you know, adult life, so you don't see, but it does all the T cell development. If you transplant that the thymus into the lymph node, you get the same outcome with the function. And this is one of the things that we're thinking about aging. Can you do thymus transplant in an older person and reboot the immune system because a lot of problems that we have with aging and we become in somehow more immune compromised and we end up dying from infection that we shouldn't. So can you do this? And Eric also did something that was very interesting. He got fetal renal cells for the patients with renal failure. He got fetal renal cells and grow the cells into the lymph node and you see the same phenomenon in an amazing way because the kidney is as complex as the liver, but have this dual that it's a blood filter that will secrete something. The liver produces bile that has to come out of the organ. The kidney produces urine. So Eric was able to grow these mini kidneys into lymph nodes. And you see not only the nephron, which is the filtering parts that you know this well, the nephron portion of the kidney, but the urothelial portion of the kidney forming urine. So in our company, we have this line of investigation that we want to do down the line is if we transplant hepatic cells, hepatocytes into the lymph nodes close to the liver and the bio can be produced and go into the GI tract, can we do the same thing with lymph nodes close to the bladder? We have plenty of lymph nodes close to the bladder. Then we have the small mini kidneys that somebody who is leading towards renal failure doesn't go to renal failure or doesn't need to go on dialysis yet because you have much better filtration of the blood with all these ectopic kidneys. And for the pancreas, if you have diabetes and you transplant beta cells, pancreatic cells into the lymph nodes and they produce insulin, can they control the diabetes and give you a normal life without using insulin? So, so all these issues are on the table. We don't have enough capital to do all these things at the same time. So we are very selective. You know, Michael raised enough money to go to the first clinical trial on the liver, but we have all this pipeline to be developed. It's just fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. It seems essentially limitless in terms of the impact you can have. The point you made about the thymus is a really interesting one. I'd love to hear more about that. So what do we know today about the degradation of the thymus and I guess the consequent degradation of the immune system function because everyone is looking at this concept of healthy aging from really different perspectives. And this is one I, I haven't actually heard before, so I'm, I'm really interested to hear more about the potential there. Yeah, this is actually, the credit goes to our investors, to Juvenescence. So when they first saw was presenting, when they saw Michael presenting this initially, they were very focused on the time because they were an aging group. And comprehensive. I mean, juvenescence is just amazing what they've done. You can go on the website and see the quality of the people and how much they invested in, you know, how much driven they are on aging. So they said, wait a minute, can we reboot the immune system by doing timeless transplant with the cell-based therapy into the lymph node? And when they saw the data, they said, we want to be part of this and let's develop the first item on your pipeline, which is the liver cells. 
To get functional thymus cells, the aging is very important. As a transplant surgeon, I've done a lot of human donors, 10 years straight doing donors almost every week. So most of the time you open an adult person, the thymus is not there anymore. If you look at the mediastinum, the thymus is not there. When you're operating on kids, the thymus is right there. You can see the thymus and you know it's, it's easy to get the thymus. And even there are some kids that uh, it's an interesting, sad problem. But one of the applications that we want to do is some children with cardiac disease, with congenital cardiac disease, when they have the first operation, open heart procedure, the surgeons, in order to see the heart, have to take the thymus out so they can operate on the heart. Right. And they throw the thymus away. And these kids develop some problems down the line. So could we use that time with cells as we are doing it right now? Hmm. Could you process these cells and set up a transplantation into the lymph node? Then wow. if you have a good match in older people like myself, then you need it. Then you will transplant this and reconstitute some functions of your immune system that will make you more immune competent. So we are very much into this because aging is not just you know, the time frame that goes into your body, but this metabolic features that you face, this you know, medical problems that you face. And infection is a major issue and also your ability to fight against cancer. When you are yeah. in somehow immune compromise, your, your own system will not pick up some neoplastic cells that otherwise the immune system said, that's not us. Right. And go get them. So, so if you increase the immune competence of people, can we treat infectious disease and make them less susceptible to cancer? And the answer is uh, most likely yes. And the therapy that we are proposing now, the biggest issue right now is to raise enough money to get these things going because, you know, run three or four clinical trials at the same time. Costs a lot of money. It, yeah. it is. It you is need a, a lot of smart people to, to run them. It is a major effort. Yeah. But the, I mean, there's definitely unmet medical needs sitting right in front of us and the knowledge and how to do this. I think it's definitely on the table. It's amazing. I, I have one final question, but actually, before we go to that question, there's something that I, I just couldn't resist because you, you mentioned it while we were just talking before the show. I normally don't like to go through entire backstories of, of everyone because especially people like you have had such incredible career. We could probably spend a whole episode on the backstory, but you did mention that you, I think, had your own lab and, and were doing surgeries at 19 years old. So this was too much for me to pass up. I'd love if you could just talk about how you caught the medical bug, so to speak, and, and got I think you uh, you cut it earlier than most. Yeah, I was very fortunate because my both parents met in uh, medical training, so they were physicians. So I was exposed to the medical field early in my life, and I really had a passion when I was a teenager, at 12, 13 years old. I used to go with my father to the hospital to see the surgical procedures. I, I was very interested in surgery. He was doing liver surgeries and all this stuff. I was I was very interested. So I really understood that I could go to medical school. In my country, you can go to medical school right after you finish high school. It's like in right. Europe, you know, you go, you go straight. So if you get a good grade on your SATs, you will qualify into a full scholarship program that you don't put a dime and you get a free education. So I went through this. I was accepted into medical school when I was 17, 18 years old. And I wrote a paper in my first year on vascular surgery that the chief of vascular surgery said, did you write this? I said, yes, sir. Would you like to come to the lab? I said, yes. <laughs> Would you like to do research? I said, yes, sir. So this guy had this unique mind as a surgeon scientist. He was interested in coagulation. He was very interested in clotting. And he wants to develop this arterial, this model in dogs for developed clots and use drugs. One of, one of the drugs that he was testing was aspirin. 
this is how old I am. <laughs> so, so, so he taught me how to operate. So with 19 years old, we have a dog model in the lab where I could do vascular anastomosis in dogs and test these different drugs. And for me, it was clear that the medical field was that as a surgeon, if you understand the mechanical part and you can connect vessels and you can do some other stuff and you use your mind to work on the scientific side, you can do a lot. So yeah. I was in the lab all the time from that time until now. So it's been 50, close to 50 years now. Wow, amazing. Just to close out here, I'd I'd love if you could just paint a picture of what, what the world would look like in 20 years if Ligenesis is successful. We've just gone through a, a number of the different options here. But if we could just think, you know, everything's going right, big picture, blue skies, what, what's different in 20 years if you all are, are able to achieve your vision? Yeah, I, I love this question because now being old enough to live through my own failures and frustrations and dreams that didn't work through. When I started doing transplants, the guys doing gene transplantation used to say to me, you're going to lose your job in five years. We're going to be able to do all this right. gene transfers. <laughs> we have all the vectors. We're going to train all the DNAs. And then you're not going to even need, need to do transplants and, you know, get another job. <laughs> 30 years later, the technology has evolved a lot. We don't have the perfect type of cells. The iPSC cells, there is one good cell from Doug Mantle now that's going to a clinical trial is working well. We are not there yet. And there's other technologies that I mentioned we didn't control them safe enough to tell the FDA that we're going to make this work. Sadly, a couple of weeks ago, there was a large biotech company, international big pharma, that lost the four patients on a clinical trial for genetic therapy, four deaths, and they, they stopped the trial. So I think it, the cell-based therapy, we will grow with this idea that we show that the first generation is still old-fashioned allogeneic. You get the cells that work, but they have the price of being different immunologically, and you have to use immunosuppression. And as you asked so wisely, sometimes it can be off the shelf all the time. But if we have the right location now and the right technology with the endoscope to put the cells in the right place. And then can we get to a second generation of cells that now we control the cells in a way that we can genetically modify the cells mm -hmm. and create the cells that we really need for the function that we need. And most, most important than anything, can we act early on patients, because as a transplant surgeon, my biggest frustration was, I would like to see you 10 years before, yes. because now you're too sick. So can we improve in preventive medicine that we can understand diseases in a better way that if we have to do any procedure or act on the patient, act earlier in a minimally invasive way to have a less aggressive operation and then increase the time that they live and the quality of life. This is what, what we're really looking for. Absolutely. That's an amazing vision. Thank you. I, I just really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. You've got a, a wealth of experience and, and I think you communicate it in such a passionate and patient-centric way. It's it's so clear to me talking to you that you love the science, but you even more than loving the science, you love the patients that you're impacting. So it's so great to get the chance to speak to you. Yeah. As I told you earlier, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to serve all these people and their families. And you live this through yourself, so you know what I'm talking about. So so when you were sick, you need help. 
and it is great when you can devote your life and have people like you around you that values human life more than anything. And I tell people we are the same. So when we do transplants, it's very clear there's no difference between us. There's no religion. There's no ethnicity. We are the same. We are humans and we can help each other through this process. So when we focus on the patients and their families and we want to serve them in the best possible way and we treat them with dignity and passion, it's the best way that you can do this. And and, and how long it will take us to get all the answers. I hope that the VC guys help us to get the <laughs> money. Right. To get the money that we need to build the milestones, you know, go to the FDA one by one and, you know, safety, efficacy, get approved, safety, efficacy. It takes time, but, you know, it's a long way to go. That's right. And with the public service announcement for any investors that like the sound of this and and want to get in touch with you all to (laughs) to help you get there faster, I, I couldn't imagine a better place to put your money right now. Thank you. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And and as always, please share with a friend if you like the episode, send us a message at podcast at sonogenetics.com. Leave a review on your favorite podcast player that helps other people find us. And thanks so much for your time. See you next time. <laughs>